Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In today's episode, we are joined by Desi Heathwood, a seasoned professional in the financial services industry. Desi brings a wealth of experience and wisdom gained throughout his career and shares thoughts on topics that we can all relate to. How to care for both money and health as we age, the importance of putting clients first, and retirement planning. Listen in as we delve into the fascinating world of finance, relationships, and personal well-being in this thought-provoking episode. Desi Heathwood, welcome to Educational Alpha. Glad to be here, Bill. So I've done uh, maybe two dozen of these episodes so far, and if I end up doing hundreds of more, I could not possibly find a guest who I've known on a professional basis as long as you and somebody who's been so impactful on my career as you still are today in uh, some ways that you might not even imagine. But we're going to cover that and more, I hope. But it's a great honor uh, because our friendship uh, endures for decades. But maybe before we get into some of those themes, uh, perhaps you can introduce yourself to the audience. You've had a long professional career. Uh, you're doing other things now in, in this next chapter of your life, but maybe a bit of a background on Desi Heathwood. Thank you, Bill. I have uh, been most of my working career in the uh, financial services industry, broad umbrella, mostly when I graduated from Wharton in 1969, I went to Wall Street. It was early on in Wall Street that I realized it wasn't really for me because it was so transactional oriented and that it didn't really get you a chance to have a, in my opinion, a long lasting relationship with your client base. I was an analyst, so it wasn't really my job to have a client base. Uh, I followed the retail industry for several years, but I noticed in my clients at that time, the money managers, I said, I think I like that side of the table better. They had fewer clients. The clients had entrusted the money to the money manager. They were very dependent on the success of the money manager. It wasn't just, uh, let's do a transaction today and I might see you in six months. So that appealed to me a lot in the money management as opposed to the brokerage a Wall Street side. And to get into it, I... Uh, had an opportunity to go to California. And I was uh, young, uh, substantially younger then. My family was young. I had uh, twin boys that were five years old, and my daughter was seven. And uh, a very uh, devoted wife who was willing to help me to be a partner. So uh, we moved to Cal uh, Los Angeles without knowing anybody. I 
worked for a very small affiliate of the Boston company, did that from 1977 to 1989. And in that period of time, my interest and the whole money management industry shifted from trying to develop a business with high net worth individuals to the institutional money management business. RISA had been passed in the early 70s. And as I look back, nobody really realized the avalanche of money that was going to be pouring in to money management firms in the ensuing 30 or 40 years. So I had a lot of wind in my back as uh, when I started at that part of my career. And another thing that I'd point out that was a benefit for me, things moved so slowly then. You could sort of make a mistake and it didn't bury you forever. And you sort of figured things out and the different aspects of money management and the whole idea of investment styles. I mean, when I started, everything was a balanced account. 60, 40, and that's how it was managed. But then the specialization developed. And fortunately, I uh, had some success. It just winded my back. I had great people that I was working with. So the people in Boston eventually took notice and said, well, why don't you come back and head up the whole money management area for the Boston company? And uh, that's when I... um, 1990, I came back to Boston, not really come back because I'd never lived there. And I started trying to build a large scale money management business, primarily institutional. And that led me to me. Uh, you know, Bill has mentioned to me how he appreciates me as a mentor to him. And certainly that's very flattering. But I'll tell you, another thing that one should look for in life is somebody who works for you, who is hardworking, intelligent, and totally trustworthy. And when I went back to Boston, I found that individual in Bill Kelly, and he was a part of my career from 1990 to like uh, 2010 when I uh, retired. Well, yeah, you're very uh, kind uh, to say that. You've meant a lot to me, as I said, and I think my goal and role in life as I'm entering maybe the latter autumn of my years in this industry to pay that back. And I want to come to mentorship in a second and then maybe follow on with the importance of the client. But but a couple of interesting observations about the formative uh, years and maybe the golden years of your tenure in this industry. And uh, some things have changed, but an important thing has not. And I'll come back to that in a second, too. But I think What has changed is this was a cottage industry. Nobody had dominant share. The barriers to entry are very, very low. And some of the big financial conglomerates like banks and insurance companies were not the very best owners because they're always focused on share of wallet. If you're selling lockbox services to the client, maybe you should sell commission services and other things. And that didn't necessarily work out so well. But now I guess the barriers to entry are are still not terribly high, but it's become very competitive and you need balance sheet. You need a lot of technology and the banks and insurance companies have become formidable forces uh, in this space and some of the largest asset managers globally. But as that's happened, the value proposition for whose money it is in the first place, 
that should never, ever go out of style. And I think you were the one, and I finished many of, of my posts with hashtag client first, and you're the one who really drilled this into my skull early on about what would the client think. And that piece has not changed. Maybe it has in some shops, uh, but we need to have that indoor, especially as you said earlier, Desi, the 60-40 is the world we grew up in. And maybe diversification meant, well, why is it all large cap value? Get some growth in there, get some small cap in there, maybe you can hedge some of it. But now the conversation has extended to the private markets from early stage VC to private equity. So a lot of opportunity for client, maybe also a lot of opportunity for the asset manager to gather assets without adding any value. But but maybe to come back to this point more head on, what was the spark for you to have that as uh, as your credo? What would the client think? I don't know if there's something in the early days about the transaction part of Wall Street or it came to you later, but I think that insight would be great for the audience. When somebody talks about our clients and how institutions and people deal with their clients, there's several aspects to it. To begin with, isn't it kind of fair to treat the client well? I mean, who pays your mortgage? Who puts the food on the table for your family? Who helps you uh, educate your kids? It's the client. So I always looked on it in a, in a bit of a micro sense. It just seemed to be very fair. Another uh, aspect of dealing with the client is the business model that you're in. And one of the things that appealed to me about the independent investment advisor was that they had no product that they were getting a commission on. They weren't, certainly in the latter days, getting any kickback on commissions that they did if they were ethical. And so all they had was the relationship with the client with a contract that could be cancelable in 30 days. So the business model that I liked and got into uh, with most of my career was geared to putting the client first. Another aspect, if you read any firm's goals or aspirations or values, they always have clients in there. I'm sure that Wells Fargo had that in theirs 10 years ago when they got into trouble with opening accounts of, of clients. And I'm not just picking on Wells Fargo. I just say that to have it in your goals or values is really lip service for most of these companies. Many of the companies whose business model requires to sell their product to the client, regardless if it's helpful or not. And another aspect of it is I've had a range of clients from very sophisticated CEOs of Fortune 500 companies down to a union worker who's sitting on a board of a jointly trusteed account between labor and union. And they have something in common, most all of them. They know how they're being treated. They won't know initially how they're being treated, but over a period of time, they see if you treat them with respect. If you let them finish the question they're asking before jumping in on it, assuming that you already know the answer, but you don't understand where this question is coming uh, from. So I, I think clients understand who is treating them right. And, and then finally, it just worked for me. I mean, I 
I have had thousands of clients over my career. And very much a business, no matter how sophisticated, it does rely on personal interactions. And there comes a point in time, particularly when your business is dependent on investment performance and the vagaries of that, where if you've treated the client respectfully and reasonably, they will give you a chance. I've always felt that uh, I never really had a bad client. For the most part, they were more understanding than I might have been myself. I didn't mean to go so long, but you know how important it is to me, Bill, and how it was to our firm. Yeah, and you know, there's a fancier term for it today, a cultural alpha. But I very much believe what you say, that if it's reduced to a nice slogan on your website, uh, you've lost your way. Or you have to consult with a lawyer to say, is this practice okay? You've lost your way. Because the gray area, even with the codification of rules and Gensler and company are doing their very best to put more and more in place, there's still a wide gray area. And that's the area that we toil in as professionals. And we've got to make sure we do it right. And maybe, Desi, before we turn the page on this too, you were always a tremendous advocate for professionalism. And I'd like to think you would have given equal billing to the Kaya credential if it existed during the course of your career. It did not come in the map until circa 2000. But even when I first met you, I was in an accounting financial position and you insisted anybody associated with you get involved in the CFA program. And uh, I'm a level two candidate for the CFA as I sit here today. Uh, maybe someday I'll find the uh, gumption uh, to go back. But uh, you were uh, maybe early, maybe not. Perhaps it was more pervasive, but this was table stakes uh, for you and anybody that worked for you. And not maybe proof that you could crawl across glass to get through a tough credential, but it was a hallmark of what it meant to be in a profession in an industry that just has all sorts of body types and mentalities and ethics, et cetera. So maybe just talk about your views there, because I know that that was something that you were uh, a flag you flew very, very high. When I first entered the industry, you remember this is in the uh, mid-60s. It was just such a different industry than it is today. It's hard to believe that there were fixed commission rates for brokerage trades. The fee to manage funds was probably maybe a couple hundred basis points, let alone uh, the charges, the sales charges they were uh, putting on, on top of it. So you wander into this industry, and then you see some of the participants in the industry. For the most part, the most successful people seem to have a good golf game and a credit card. And uh, that is how they built a, a business without regard of understanding the products or even a desire to understand uh, the products. You know, their thing was get a client, do the transaction, and make a fee. And CFA was just beginning in those days. And I always felt that it was a minimum professional standard to be set. And that is why uh, it was important to me to get it. And I tried to advocate it for the people that worked for me, no matter where in the industry they might have been, whether in more the financial area as opposed to the investment area like yourself. I will say, in fairness, I was fortunate in that the level of knowledge that they were looking for early on was really kind of basic. I remember studying some of the early exams, getting ready for my exams, 
And I think one of the questions was, you know, what's the difference between a preferred stock and a common equity? Now, you know, I, I, I see the, the questions that, that I ask, and oh my God, there's so much more uh, demanding. Now, there were some tougher questions than that. So I think uh, overall, it is important to maintain these minimum standards. And the industry is so, the products are so much more complex today and the suitability of products and really the risks in products are, are, you know, how many times does the unintended consequence of some great product pop up in the middle of disaster and clients really were totally unaware that now they had this risk and usually it's the loss of principle is the tally that they have to pay. Yeah, and I know while you're not active in the industry, you are one of the most active investors uh, I know, not day trading, but very interested in opportunities out there. And I think uh, being curious, asking questions, and if you don't understand either what you're buying or how it's being feed, you simply need to walk the other way. Uh, Because I know you have been active in some of the private equity offerings of various entities out there. And I, I still think there's opportunity, but I think your point about understanding what you're buying and and representing the person on the other side uh, does not have your interest to heart as much as you do. No matter how good they are, you care about your balance sheet more than they do. And that's just a fact. For sure. So maybe a couple of things and maybe turn into page and how to retire by not retiring because life has seasons to them. And I think there are more than four of them. And hopefully whatever that last season lasts a, a good and long period of time. But But I think when you go to make that decision to stop working full time, if you've been very, very successful, maybe you do it in your 40s or 50s, but you better have a plan in place and a damn good one because you got a lot of living in front of you and and your golf game or tennis game or sitting on the couch watching Netflix uh, gets old very, very quickly. So maybe talk about you've had a variety of interests and, and one that I know firsthand is your health. And I know you and I both know a couple of very close friends that are going through some challenges right now. And some of that's just bad luck or hereditary uh, challenges with things like cancer, but, uh, and that can't be helped. But some of this is in our control. And if you want to not only live, but live in a viable way into your 80s and 90s, you can't start thinking about that at 79 and a half. So, so you've had a lot of interest to keep your mind active and sharp. Health and healthcare has been a tremendous uh, thing that you've invested in uh, personally and your family balance sheet. And maybe just to underscore how important this is and what it's meant as you are in your uh, ninth decade. There's many uh, aspects to this as well. When I was getting near retirement, when I retired in my late 60s, I was told that at 65, that the odds were that either my wife or I would live to be 95. I mean, that was just a shock to me because as you're young, like, and I consider you younger, you don't think of the end of life, but my God, 95. I mean, that was uh, ancient. And then another thing, you know, when I picked the place that I was going to spend the winters in, I happened to pick Palm's Beach. Palm Beach is... As somebody once said, if you ever think you're old or rich, go to Palm Beach, you'll be neither. Because the definitions of rich and age down there are off the charts. One of the things I developed in retirement 
was uh, I wanted to play bridge. I learned it early in high school, but never really spent much time at it. So I play a lot of bridge. I play regularly with uh, people that are in their 90s. And a couple of years ago, I played against two men that were each 100. So when you're getting older and looking at retirement, you've got to look a long way down the runway because you've got a long way yet to go. Now, some about how you're going to handle it is a function of, uh, if I could borrow the, keep the analogy going, the cards you're dealt, your marital status, your health status to begin with, your financial status, the geography of where you live. Uh, These things all uh, fall into place. But as anybody will tell you, particularly as they get to my age, that uh, health is the bottom line. It's how you wake up and how you go to bed. I was fortunate in that it struck me early that you're on a crossroads. You're either going to go down and be the jolly, slow-moving, heavy-set, heavy-drinking guy, or you're going to put this as a priority in your life. And in both homes that I have, I have a gym. And to have a gym in one's house, somebody asked me where you should spend your money. I'd say, build yourself a gym in your house. And you can do this at reasonable cost. Of course, nothing in Palm Beach is reasonable. And you don't need to have all the equipment in the world. But the equipment is really relatively inexpensive. And you get all the video. I built a gym, gyms, and I had trainers. And just like you can have bad habits, you can develop good habits. And like if I don't work out in in the course of a week or a couple of days, I feel like I haven't shaven. I I just feel I don't feel right. So that has uh, helped me a lot. And along with that is your diet. When you move on in retirement, uh, you got to develop the social nature, the people you deal with and the variety of them and the way you interface with them becomes an important part of your life. And then I haven't even talked about your family. People arrive at old age with different family relationships. I was fortunate. I have a great family. I have seven grandkids. Some of them are off to college. It's like living your life the second time around uh, when you have it with the uh, grandkids. And one other thing that was uh, important to me was uh, travel. I had the wherewithal to travel, and so my wife and I have traveled extensively in the last 15 years. And I just finished a trip that brought me to uh, the Himalayas in Ladakh, which is near the Pakistani border of India. It's at 12,000 feet. And I was, well, I wanted to see the world in Asia, which I did do. It was also, I was just curious, could I do it? And my wife and I, we were by 10 or 15 years, the oldest people on the trip. And the only reason we were able to make that trip was less that we had the money to do it, but that we had kept ourselves in reasonable shape to do it. And one last thing, it's called quality of life. You know, I mean, if you're on a cane and you're shuffling and you're wheezing and coughing, the quality of your life isn't very good. It's another reason to try to stay in shape and uh, as best you can. Well, I think very good advice. Maybe weaving a couple of things together. As I said, I've known you a, a long time. I know your dad died when you were young. That might have had some influence. I had the pleasure of meeting your mom, affectionately known as Ellie, a couple of times. And 
I don't know if she was a mentor of yours or not, but she was a force to be reckoned with. And uh, maybe uh, you could talk about how that might have had an influence on your health. But back to mentorship, too. And I remember you telling me stories about your mom when you went to work and the A&P in the Bronx and some of the formative lessons you learned from her. And I look back on the impact. My dad is still alive. My mom just died a year ago. But even in the 90s, uh, I still can learn some things from them. I think they become more dependent on us as they age. But maybe the impact of uh, how you were raised, uh, mostly by your mom in your teen years. A big thing, you know, when people ask me uh, about my background, I guess I always started with my parents were immigrants. They were born in Northern Ireland. And in the 20s, they partitioned Northern Ireland between from the South and they were Catholics in Northern Ireland, which was really a bad spot to be. Turned out the subsequent history of the Troubles and everything, even in the 70s and 80s, they felt there was no opportunity there. So they came over in the mid-20s to America. And I would say the idea of being a product of immigrants, you began to realize the tremendous risk they take. I mean, I'm worried about traveling to London, you know, or Paris, and I'm going to stay at the Ritz. And these were people getting on a boat. They didn't know what was at the other end of it, and they had no resources. But one thing they did was they worked. That's all they did was work and push the kids for education. And I never ate in a restaurant with my parents until the day I graduated from Columbia College because we just didn't go out to eat. So anyway, uh, my, my parents as a role models were tremendous to me in, in setting the path. And one of the other things, I started working early. First, I had a paper route. Then I worked for a dry cleaner, picking up clothes. And it was just great to make money because we never had much money in the house. So I was having my own. And then I went to work for the AMP. And in all of those jobs, you interface with people and you learn that they're not all uniform. And this goes back to your initial question on the client. You begin to realize that people are different and you just got to try your best to understand them. Another thing that was important in the formation of me, I have to give a, a shout out to uh, the Jesuits. I went to a Jesuit prep school in the Bronx, Fordham Prep, and it was an eye opener. The Jesuits, you learned there was a world outside the Bronx. There was a time that existed before you were born and that there were standards that you had to achieve. And I would say I went on to Columbia, I went on to uh, Wharton for my MBA, done a lot of executive courses at a lot of great schools. But I would say it was those Jesuits when I was 14 that really uh, shaped how I looked at the world. That might be a good concluding uh, subject about the time and the place that you grew up in versus me versus maybe my kids and eventually my grandkids. And uh, I don't know when uh, this concept of what was coined the greatest generation began and maybe weakened or maybe ended, but you grew up where uh, religion mattered, where service of country mattered, where optimism and structure were all part of how everybody grew up. And we don't have that as much anymore. And the tolerance for somebody that doesn't look like you or doesn't agree with you is true from Congress all the way down to the dinner table in some cases. And uh, 
we seem to be moving in the wrong direction. So this isn't a political rabbit hole. It's more about have we frayed some of the norms of society that made us more optimistic and tolerant? Uh, and if we have maybe what you've seen uh, through your lens of experience and, and growing up and what you're seeing with your kids and grandkids and any thoughts and observations there, I think would be a good way to wrap this conversation. Well, I uh, feel, uh, I, not that you would remember every word I said at my retirement party, but I felt that it was a very fortuitous time that I was born into, where there was a tremendous opportunity for children of immigrants. And it was, you could say, a golden age. But the day I was born in 1941, you had in front of me, if somebody said, well, as I was coming down to earth, they said, well, you know, a world war is going to start in six months, and it'll be ended with nuclear bombing. A depression you're just sort of getting out of. And your parents are in a new country, and they have accents, and they have minimal education, but welcome aboard. If somebody had laid that out to me, I'd say, Jesus, this, can I have another choice? So you never know what the future brings, Bill, even though at the present, I would agree with you that there are a lot of upsetting things in the world, but maybe that uh, they always are. And I guess, maybe not all your audience, but at least to be trying to meet the future while being in America is a good head start. There's a reason why thousands of people are trying to crawl with kids on their back over the Rio Grande to get to the United States. I don't see anybody going to the Soviet Union that way or into China that way. If anything, they're all trying to get out. So I try to remember my own experience and believe that people younger than me, uh, and I'm certainly by now, they're a lot smarter, that uh, they will figure out the issues that have to be addressed. Well, I said at the beginning of that question that your generation, one of the hallmarks was optimism. And I think that's a very positive and optimistic statement that I'm going to take at face value because I think even in investing, the short to medium term doesn't really matter. And I could ask you uh, where you think the market's going to finish up uh, at the end of this year. And there's only a few more months. How wrong could you be? Uh, it doesn't matter. Do you believe in the longer term and the economic outlook and the, the power of the U.S. and then all it's been able to accomplish, then I think it's, that's a very different discussion. So I think it gets back to reorienting our views over the long term. So uh, we'll leave it uh, there, Desi. It's uh, you're very kind uh, to indulge me uh, at this uh, age and stage of your life, but but rest assured, we can still learn a lot from your experiences. I did throughout the course of my career. People that I interact with, I'll say certain things and uh, they wonder, where the hell did that come from? And oftentimes it might be a godfather analogy or a phrase I learned from you or remember from uh, your mom, Ellie. So it, it continues to mean a lot to me. And, uh, and you've launched many, many successful careers, but even more importantly, very uh, successful human beings that I'm proud to call friends. And we hold many of those in common. So thank you for all of that. And I would say, keep on doing Desi. Thank you very much, Bo. Pleasure to be working with you again. Take care now. 
Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.